Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and joining me in the studio is my good friend and colleague, Ben Boland. Ben, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, having me back. You know, I have to say uh, I worked on an opening joke for this, but at uh, but at this point I thought, you know, I don't want to disparage the gravity of what we're doing Yeah, anything less than a few tangents or puns in this story, because this is a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story, and and you can't get around the fact that the end of the story is massively tragic, right? Like, right. Like, there's, there's a ton of things that we can talk about, and what we are talking about is the Manhattan Project. And I'm going to go ahead and let you guys know, this sucker's going to be a two-parter, because in order to cover the Manhattan Project, you have to have an understanding of what was going on in physics leading up to the beginning of the project, which will be this episode. Mm-hmm. And then there's another episode that will be all about the actual developments of the project itself. And this is complicated for multiple reasons. One, uh, nuclear physics. Right. Yeah. Not, not straightforward, as it turns out. No pressure at all. Yeah. Uh, actually, lots of pressure because of the implosion technique. But we'll get into that in episode two. <laughs> uh, also, politics. A lot of politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the Manhattan Project was formed as a result of uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. If World War II had not been happening, the Manhattan Project probably would not have been formed. Uh, and nuclear power may have either been pushed back by quite a bit or someone else would have ended up developing it ahead of the United States. So uh, th- both of those things, science and politics – by themselves are complex. Mm-hmm. And when you combine the two and you try to make science work within the realm of a political structure, it gets messy. Yeah. And not, not in like a cool, I got my hair cut at a nice salon. Look at me messy. But no, not me- like rolled out of bed. Oh, oh, this didn't take me any time at all. <laughs> right. Messy, uh, as in, uh, is a massive loss of blood and treasure. I think we're looking at the equivalent of, when it got rolling, $30 billion? You, you know... In it today's all, money. It all, yeah, in today's money. It all depends upon the... the Well, it really depends upon how you define the scope of the project. Because ah, good, yeah. That's something else that is kind of confusing. Because you hear Manhattan Project and mm. you think, okay, uh, Manhattan Project, that's the one that took place in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Hanford, Washington, uh-huh. Los Alamos, New Mexico. Yeah. Makes sense. Sure. Uh, we will explain <laughs> all of that as we go through. So in case you weren't aware, the Manhattan Project was the code name the United States government gave to the uh, the effort to design and build an atomic bomb mm-hmm. uh, for use in World War II. And in order for us to talk about it, we have to go back way before World War II. In fact, we have to go back before World War One. Yes. Yeah. We have to go all the way back to the, I guess, the end of the 19th century. That is correct. Late 19th century. Uh, there was a, a, a fella by the name of Henri Becquerel, all right, who had made an interesting observation, uh, observing that some material when placed a against some plates would create a negative image. And he had assumed that this material was phosphorescent, that it absorbed sunlight and then given off some form of ray to create this image. But later determined that he was mistaken, that there was no need for the sunlight. This stuff was giving off the rays 
by itself. Spooky. And then you had the uh, the Curies coming mm-hmm. along who who went on to study this themselves. Marie Curie uh, coined the term radioactive, mm-hmm. radioactive with the word ray in it. And so at this point, there was an understanding that certain elements had a type of energy they could give off spontaneously, spontaneous radiation. And that is the beginning, the nub, the, the kernel mm-hmm. that forms the the uh, very center of the Manhattan Project's purpose. So building on that, we then have – there's a guy in 1905 – he had a little theory. It was a special theory. I mean, relatively special. Oh, man. Yes, yes. And that, that man, uh, you may know today, uh, through countless internet memes as right. Albert Einstein. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, Albert Einstein, Al to his friends, mm-hmm. was a, uh, brilliant physicist, obviously. And it was all the way back in 1905 when Einstein proposed the special theory of relativity, which, among many other things, posited that energy and matter are pretty much interchangeable. And this is where the the famous equation E equals MC squared comes from. The Mm -hmm. E means energy. The M means mass. The C squared, C stands for the constant of the speed of light through a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Keeping in mind that light actually can travel at different speeds depending upon the medium through which it travels. It travels more slowly through water than through a vacuum, for example. Sure, yeah. So you take that constant of light, uh, the speed of light in a vacuum, and you square it. So a number that's already huge gets huger. Mm-hmm. Uh, that huge number, by the way, in case you're wondering, is 299,792,458 meters per second. Squaring that, you get 8.99 times 10 to the 16th power. It's a big number, right? <laughs> That's pretty big. So what that tells you, if you look at that equation, what that tells you is that a very tiny amount of mass is equivalent to an enormous amount of energy. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, an enormous amount of energy is equivalent to a teeny tiny little bit of mass. So if you were to have a physical process in which you start with an atom and you split that atom and the two components of that split atom collectively have less mass than the original atom, Mm -hmm. you can't destroy or create energy or mass, but you can convert one to the other. That mass gets converted into energy. Uh, essentially kinetic energy, which gets converted into heat, mm-hmm. and then you get a, a whole bunch of heat from it. Yeah. So that's what Einstein had said. He says, this is this is the way the universe works. Energy and mass, it's ultimately the same thing. And then there were, the, if I recall, there were three broad historical reactions. Some people said, nah. Some people said, maybe. And a lot of people went, oh. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and so this really... Uh, you know, this, we're going to be talking a lot about two different types of scientists. Sure. Theoretical scientists. Mm-hmm. Not, they're not theoretical. They, <laughs> right. They, they work in the realm of theory and experimental scientists mm-hmm. who take theory, apply experiments to test those theories and then find out if the results either bear the theory out or it needs mm-hmm. to be tweaked or whatever. Right. So, uh, in 1911, we get another important development uh, by a, a discovery by a fellow named Ernest Rutherford. Mm-hmm. Now, Rutherford proposes a model of the atom in which you have a nucleus of positive particles, which are dubbed protons, 
and they're orbited by negatively charged particles, dubbed electrons. That's the Rutherford model of the atom, and it's the simplest version. Question. Yes. Just, just for you and the audience. Sure. I'm sure a lot of people have wondered this when they were learning this. Why didn't you go with neutrons? <laughs> neutrons? I mean, that sounds so much cooler. Because uh, they use pro. It's a positive thing. <laughs> well, you know, like protons, electrons, protons, neutrons. Oh, I gotcha. But being yeah. being negative, those would be the neutrons. <sighs> Why? Well, because did... electrons are the agent through which uh, electricity is. Carried. I know it's a matter of priority, and that transcends a matter of marketing. But I'm saying, well, we could even go back to the fact that Benjamin Franklin was convinced that current means that that's the movement of positively charged particles from one point to the other, which is why current flows in the opposite direction of actual electricity. Which, by the way, drives me crazy. <laughs> We've talked about it before, and which, by the way, I think we could cut to the end of the show <laughs> because this means clearly that uh, nuclear weapons are should be the blame for those should be laid at. The, at the feet of Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, like so many things. He's the real bad guy. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so uh, Ernest Rutherford, yeah, he, so, he discovers this, he creates this model. And, and then Niels Bohr, another important mm-hmm. physicist, he refines that model. He starts to concentrate on the quantum behavior of electrons. And that's where we get the Bohr model mm-hmm. of atoms. And then I'm going to skip ahead to 1919. And that's when Rutherford transmutes nitrogen into oxygen. This is something that alchemists had been attempting to do for centuries, although their form of transmutation was more about lead into gold. Sure, sure, or the philosopher's stone or whatever, but this is uh, an actual transmutation. This is a point where Rutherford uh, crosses, I don't want to say it as though he's like doing something bad, but where he where he goes from just a theory to the application, the way that you're talking about, demonstrating it in the real world, and uh, this triggers even more changes in our timeline. Right. So the way he does this is he takes some uh, nitrogen atoms and he bombards them with something called alpha particles. And alpha particles essentially, although he didn't know this yet, uh, an alpha particle is essentially two uh, protons and two neutrons, also known as a, heli- uh, a helium nucleus. So... If you use a helium nucleus, if you strip away the electrons, what you're left with is essentially an alpha particle. And he bombards these nitrogen uh, atoms with that. That's what converts it over into oxygen. So then we skip ahead by a couple of decades, uh, we're, or, well, a little more than a decade, mm-hmm. to 1932. Ah, yes. This is uh, when James Chadwick, who was one of Rutherford's colleagues, discovers the nucleus of an atom can... Oh, by the way, 1932, big year in physics. Yeah, (laughs) a couple things happen. Yeah, so he discovers that the nucleus of an atom can also contain particles that have no charge Mm -hmm. at all. They're just hanging out. They're just there. They're kind of like that roommate I used to have who... You know, I, I felt like, come on, dude, just just pay your part of the utilities already. Come on. I was in a weird place, man. I'm sorry. And I wasn't going to name you. But <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, they, these are these are neutral. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the neutrons. Right. And by this time, they, there was an understanding now that the atoms typically consisted of protons and neutrons in the nucleus and orbited by a number of electrons that were equal to the number of protons. Right. Right. And that's what balances out the charge. Uh, there's a, the, but, oh, let's infomercial it. But wait, there's more. There is more. Two things that you can, you can, uh, talk about. One which is really important in nuclear physics and one which is not going to really play a part. One is the, that being that if you have an atom that has an excess or, uh, of electrons or too few electrons, it's an, uh, 
It's an ion of mm-hmm. that particular atom. But you can also have a different number of neutrons from the protons. You can have a, a, a variety of them. And we call these different varieties of these various atoms isotopes. So an isotope of an atom is, uh, is a, a version of that atom that has a specific number of neutrons. So that's important to remember. Now, yeah. at the time when Chadwick made this discovery, hydrogen was the, uh, the, the lightest, the, the least massive of all the elements at one. And the, the heaviest or the one with the most mass was uranium at 92. Mm-hmm. That number refers to the number of protons in the atom. Not the number of neutrons. So chemists had discovered that the atoms of the, of the same element sometimes had different weights. This is what led to the discovery of isotopes. So they, they'd say, oh, well, here's an, a uranium atom. Mm-hmm. But we've got this other uranium atom, and they, they're chemically identical. They're exactly the same chemically. But this other one's a little heavier than this one. So what, what gives? What, that doesn't make sense. And that's where they discovered isotopes. Mm-hmm. So uranium has three isotopes. Now, all of them have 92 protons and 92 electrons, because if they didn't, it wouldn't be uranium. Uh, <laughs> but it does have a different number of neutrons. So you've got uranium-238. Mm-hmm. That's the most common form of uranium found in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has 146 neutrons in the nucleus. Uh, it's ni- it makes up 92% of all natural uranium. Right, yeah. So when you, when you go uranium hunting, odds are you're going to find U-238. Then you have uranium-235, which has 143 neutrons, and uranium-234, which has 142 neutrons. And U-235 will become incredibly important mm-hmm. in and, this discussion. And uh, U-234 is one of the decay products, right? Yeah. Uh, 235. Yeah. Okay. So also in 1932, going on at the same time, you had physicists J.D. Crockroft and E.T.S. Walton split a lithium atom into two helium nuclei, uh, the, the protons and neutrons I was talking about, mm-hmm. by bombarding the lithium with protons using a particle accelerator. And this is the first example of someone splitting the atom. The very first time. Yeah. It is, in my opinion, this is up there with uh, the first human footfall on the moon. Yeah. This fundamentally changes everything and it's strange that uh, we don't hear more people talk about it yeah uh, a lot of people will talk about uh the early work in nuclear fission which we will get to mm-hmm. which happened in a place that precipitated the need for the manhattan project <laughs> right so in california 1932 mm-hmm. same time as everything else uh, you had a group with Ernest O. Lawrence, who will be incredibly important in this conversation, mm-hmm. Stanley Livingston, and Milton White, uh, who operated the first cyclotron on the Berkeley campus of the University of California. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lawrence would end up playing an instrumental role in the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Now, uh, for everyone who's wondering, uh, a cyclotron is yeah. a particle accelerator, right? Right, right. It was, uh, this is the era where we start getting the earliest particle accelerators. Van de Graaff would build one as well mm-hmm. in a different style. Uh, and Lawrence was, uh, was working on this early and not with the goal of nuclear fission necessarily. It was part of, uh, uh particle physics to l- understand more about the fundamental particles that make up all the stuff around us. Uh, and it ultimately would end up being used to help create the, the material for nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, no one had any 
concept of doing that. Uh, 1933, there were some early attempts to find a reliable way to split atoms, but they're largely unsuccessful or very inefficient. They require right. huge amounts of power. And I'll tell you why. Most of them used protons fired at an atomic nucleus. So here's the thing. Protons have a positive charge, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. An atomic nucleus also has a positive charge because it's only made up of protons and neutrons. Ah. So we have positive and positive. So what happens if you put two ends, like two northern ends of two different magnets together? Right. They yeah. Push they push against each they other. They hate each other. Yeah. Yeah. They do. It's, uh, uh, you know, a lot like me and Josh Clark. We just, despite the fact we sit right next to each other, there's just this right. repulsion. It's kind of cool when one of you reaches out, though, and the other one falls off the chair. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Like, you know, like if I start walking towards Josh, his chair just rolls the other way. No, Josh and I get along just fine. Obviously, he was just recently on an episode of Tech Stuff. So, Um, But, yeah, it it was really hard to get a direct hit on a nucleus because of this, these like charges repelling Mm -hmm. one another. In fact, there were some estimates that said that it only happened one every one million tries. Not an efficient way to split an atom. Mm -hmm. So while people were starting to think there might be a way of getting some energy from this, like to use this as a means of generating power or perhaps even creating a weapon down the line, the the efficiency was so low that it didn't seem like it was going to be uh, uh, viable. Yeah, Yeah. feasible or viable. Exactly. Like it's a good proof of concept. Yeah. So – Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, and Rutherford all felt that the process would be great for getting a better understanding of nuclear physics, but would remain impractical for pretty much anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Rutherford actually described the idea of harnessing nuclear energy as moonshine. That was what he (laughs) called it. Uh, Einstein, his version was saying it's like the ability to uh, get a proton to to collide with a nucleus would be akin to walking into an enormous room that's pitch black and shooting at a couple of birds flying around randomly through the right, room. Right, yeah. Like that was his his comparison. And There's then, no way to make it not an accident. Right. And Niels Bohr said, it's pretty much a long shot unless we figure out something else. Mm-hmm. And then you had another fellow, a Hungarian physicist who was living in the United States, Leo Z- Szilard. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sislard hypothesized that if you use something else, not protons, what if you used a beam of neutrons aimed at an atom? Because neutrons have no charge. Right. So, so it doesn't matter. There's, how. there's no repulsion yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. The only thing is that how do you shoot a, a non-charged particle? Because if you're using protons, then all you can do, all you have to do is create a positive charge to repel it or a negative charge to attract it yeah. and move it that way. But a, a neutral one is a little trickier. Um, but he thought if you could do this and if the atom was large enough where it had its own neutrons, mm-hmm. sometimes when that atom splits up, it might give off neutrons too. And if it gives off neutrons with enough energy and you have an, enough atoms there, mm-hmm. those neutrons could collide with other atoms, which could cause them to break apart. And those neutrons could go out and hit other atoms. And each time you would be multiplying this effect. As long as you had more than one neutron being given off, yep. and as long as those were colliding with some other atoms, this trend would continue until you were out of stuff or the neutrons, or, or there just weren't enough atoms for the neutrons to make contact. And you would get a nuclear chain reaction, which you could use to either power a city or blow sure. one up. Yes, yes. Uh, at that point, they, you know, the, the next question becomes like, well, 
yes, at that point, the next question becomes a matter of control. Yeah. Because, you know, it's all well and good from an academic perspective to say, oh, guys, look at this neat thing yeah. that we think we can do. And then, you know, for someone to say, okay, well, let's, let's try it. Let's get the rubber on the road. And then, uh, what do you think is going to happen? And they say, well, one or two things. Uh, it's either going to, uh, power the city or blow it up. Right. Uh, but we're pretty confident it's going to be one of those two. So the next question is like, how do you make this useful? Right. And, and, and for Leo, I'm going to call him Leo because I'm just going to butcher his last name otherwise. (laughs) Uh, The Hungarian physicist. uh, For Leo, the problem was that when he was first trying this out, he was using lighter atoms Mm -hmm. and he couldn't get these sustained reactions. So he kind of he kind of thought, well, I guess that's a bust. It seemed like a good idea, but it's not working. So 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 it became an academic question for a while because there was they weren't he wasn't using the heavier atoms, which would have created a sustainable uh, reaction. They would have been dense enough to have that that impact. Right. They they don't decay in the same way that other other ones might just take on the neutron. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't split apart, in other words. So moving on with 1934, we get another fellow who becomes very important in the Manhattan Project, uh, Enrico Fermi, Mm -hmm. an Italian physicist. Uh, he begins to use neutrons to bombard atoms, and he figured the uncharged particles wouldn't meet that same resistance as protons, uh, mm-hmm. just as uh, Leo had. Yes. He was right. He bombarded 63 different stable elements with neutrons and created 37 new radioactive atoms. Mm-hmm. And he also found out that if he used carbon and hydrogen, he could actually slow the movement of the neutrons a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that would actually increase the chances of a nucleus accepting a new neutron. So... You wanted to fire the neutrons fast, but not too fast. You, know, you had to, you had to control that. Yes. Uh, so he then bombarded uranium with neutrons and created something, but he had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. In fact, no one was really sure at the time. There was a lot of disagreement in the scientific community about whatever Fermi had made. They were like, yeah. I, because it was new. Yeah. It and because it was new, unknown. they didn't know. Right. Right. So yeah, so they, they were wondering if it was transuranic as mm-hmm. in a, a, man-made element that mm-hmm. would not be found in nature, uh, or if Fermi had somehow managed to split up uranium so that it behaved like lighter elements. Because some of the stuff that was left over, it seemed really similar to lighter elements on the elemental table. But sure. th- how could that be? It's certainly not magic. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because he had actually achieved nuclear fission, but did not know it. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't... He didn't understand it enough to know that that's what had happened at the time. And that takes us to 1938. And this is the event that really creates the need for the Manhattan Project because it takes place in Berlin. Now, in 1938 in Berlin, it was already a very tumultuous time in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, World War II had not yet begun, but Germany had started to really cause huge problems, including... uh, Cracking down on the Jewish population already. Right, right. Uh, and it was, you know, the whole Germany-Austrian, uh, alliance was, was, uh, an issue. And then there were rumblings about Germany possibly invading other countries. Right. And so, then this was also spreading to, you know, Italy as well. Yes. Italy was also, uh, invading, uh, African nations as, mm-hmm. at the time. So this was really a, a tumultuous period. So in Berlin, 
Germany was a place where there, where particle physics, theoretical physics had really blossomed at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And you had a collection of scientists who all were just interested in furthering our understanding of the universe. They just happened to be in a place where that understanding was going to be uh, tilted toward the right. aims of, of the German government. So radio chemists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann were using Fermi's method of bombarding atoms with neutrons, and they found that uh, uranium nuclei unlike other nuclei, didn't just absorb the neutrons. They broke apart into two more or less equal pieces. They became fragments of uranium and radioactive barium isotopes, mm -hmm. which explained why some of the substances from Fermi's experiments resembled lighter elements, because they were. They were mm -hmm. barium. Yeah. So that was the, the scientific explanation of what was going on with Fermi. And Fermi's like, huh, that's interesting. Um <laughs> What's also interesting is that the, this information, because, you know, it also released some energy, uh, this information was examined by, uh, Lise Meitner and her nephew Otto Frisch. Uh, Meitner was, uh, a, a Jewish exile. She had fled Austria and was living in Sweden and was working with Hahn and Strassmann through correspondence. Mm -hmm. um, and she and Frisch looked at the results of the experiments and concluded that they released an enormous amount of energy and that this marked a new type of process, which was explained by the E equals MC squared equation. Right. So, again, we see uh, a physical proof of a theoretical proposition. Right. And uh, this also started to bring to light, hey, Maybe we should really take that Einstein equation thing really seriously. <laughs> um, so Frisch uh, was the one who called the process fission. Mm -hmm. So that's where we get nuclear fission was from Otto Frisch's uh, description of the of, of this. He, he was taking um, inspiration from biological processes mm -hmm. and cell division. So that's where he came up with uh, fission. Uh, and uh, just to just to interject, not too much of the political landscape, but I do think it's important to note a big thing ha happened to Fermi in '38 as well. And why don't you tell me about that? Oh uh, well, in 1938, he uh, left Italy to uh, receive his Nobel Prize mm -hmm. in physics, which is uh, you know it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's like when you get that. Um, Tenth stamp on your subway card. Oh, I was you thinking know? like you finally get that star on the on the Walk of Fame. Yeah, yeah, you finally yeah. get the star. Which I think I don't remember which subway stamp that is. No, you it's <laughs> it's like I think you got to go like at least twelve times. Oh man, come on, that's a commitment. Anyway, yeah. well, somehow I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's because he was a genius. Uh, and the and based on his discoveries, Fermi leaves Italy in 1938 to receive the Nobel Prize. And he never returns. Right. Because, you know, at the time, as you know, to your earlier point, the situation in Europe is at a slow boil. And especially if you are Jewish, as Fermi is, mm -hmm. this is uh, this is a time where you can, uh, like Legolas, smell a fell wind. Yeah. Right? There's actually there's a I mean, if you and I, I'm sure I, I know I've talked about this in a previous episode. I can't remember. Uh, what the subject was, but I remember specifically talking about um, uh, 
German scientists, German and Austrian scientists, mm -hmm. who fled Europe in advance of the rise of the Nazi party in mm -hmm. Germany. Uh, and then some who stuck around believing that things would get better only to find out that in fact was not the case and how despite their brilliance and their contributions to science because of their, their heritage, they were treated, they were, you know, they were pulled away from their work. Some of, the, of them were imprisoned. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course there's a whole other story we could talk about with the United States. Right. Liberating certain scientists sure. to in work for them instead of for the Nazis in Operation Paperclip. That might be that might be a little bit of a different show. I don't want to. Yeah, take no, that is definitely a different show. Too far in a different that, that's, direction. That's actually more in rocketry than it is with the Manhattan Project. Oh, absolutely. Project. So, yeah. But at any rate, so 1939, yeah. mm -hmm. our buddy Leo. He realizes the work by Hahn and Strassmann could be the answer to his failures to produce a nuclear chain reaction and that uranium would be heavy enough and could emit neutrons at an energy great enough to cause a split in another atom. So if you had enough uranium, you could presumably create a nuclear chain reaction that way. Uh, so this is this renews his interest in the possibility of creating one of these. Uh, he actually asked that Fermi and uh, Frederick Joliot Curie refrain mm -hmm. from publishing their findings. He asks them not to publish them because since he's made this realization that a nuclear chain reaction could be possible, his fear is that if they publish their findings, the Nazis will hear about it. Mm -hmm. And because the initial uh, study was done in Berlin, they could end up putting this on the fast track to developing a, a weapons program. Which would change the course of the war. Yeah, which, keep in mind, 1939, this is when the war officially begins, mm -hmm. right? When, when, you know, when World War II start, well, people would say that's when Germany invaded Poland. Right, And that's yeah. that happens in 1939. So he asks them not to publish their findings. Now, Fermi says, okay, and holds <laughs> off. But Curie goes ahead and publishes his work in April 1939. Mm -hmm. So turns out those concerns were warranted. So Leo turns to the the rock star of rock stars. Because keep in mind, this is an era when scientists had a certain prestige among the public. I mean, this is the era of people like uh, Tesla mm -hmm. making headlines and, and Edison. And meanwhile, you've got other scientists and engineers who are capturing the imagination of hundreds of thousands of people. He turns to the most influential of them all, good old Einstein. Mm -hmm. And Leo says to Al, listen here, ba Bubby, uh, that equation you made, awesome. Turns out you're right. Problem. Now we know how to make a practical application of that, mm -hmm. potentially. It's going to take some years, but the Germans are already aware of this. Right. And you know how bad the Germans can be. We're having this conversation not in Germany right. because of this. Right. Yeah. And when I say Germans, obviously I'm talking about the Nazi party. Yeah, the National Socialists. I have nothing against Germans. Uh, at any rate, so he, he says we need – to convince the United States government that we have to get on this mm -hmm. right now, because if we don't, they will. And then that's just going to be domination for Germany. Right. And so Einstein, convinced by Leo, decides to write a letter to President Roosevelt. FDR, not not Teddy. <laughs> uh, so right. he, he writes a, a letter to Roosevelt 
and expresses their concerns about the possibility of a nuclear weapon program starting in Germany and arguing that uh, the United States really has to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the letter is sent in August 1939, and on September 1st, 1939, Germany invades Poland. World War II begins, mm-hmm. officially, because that's when you get other nations in Europe declaring war against Germany. So Roosevelt ha- has a meeting with his close friend and unofficial advisor, Alexander Sachs who's not a politician. He's a, a, a financial advisor type right, guy. Yeah. Sachs and Roosevelt sit down and on October 11th, 1939, they talk about Einstein's letter on October 19th. Roosevelt writes back to Einstein and says he has formed a committee made up of representatives from the army and the Navy plus Sachs mm-hmm. to research uranium. Yeah. The advisory committee on uranium uh, headed by Lyman J. Briggs. Yeah. Briggs would become uh, another important figure in this in this story that is formed officially on October 21st, 1939. So this happens fast, right? Mm. They talk about on the 11th, on the 19th, he writes back to Einstein on the 21st. This new committee meets for the first time. Uh, Briggs, by the way, was the former director of the National Bureau of Standards. Now you get uh, Fermi and Leo concentrating on using carbon in the form of graphite to slow down neutrons in a pile of U-238. And by slowing down the neutrons, they hoped to increase the chances of a chain reaction. But they discovered that that method would really only be suitable for probably generating power because it would require too large a form factor to make an effective bomb out of it. It, it, The uranium didn't react at a level fast enough for it to be an explosive release of power. I see. It's a slow burn. Yeah. So Fermi thought uh, chances of this being useful in a weapon are pretty slim, but it could be a really useful way of generating electricity. Now, meanwhile, uh, if we move to 1940, physicists were starting to run into a problem. Uranium-238 was not prone to creating these nuclear chain reactions. They were, the, they were having issues with this. And that's the most common one. That's the one yeah. that is 92% of the world's uranium. Right. So here's your stuff, but it don't work. <laughs> right. it, it would be like, imagine that you, you have, you know, a big battery drawer and 92% of those batteries have just a little juice in them. They're not enough for you to like, you know, you put them in your RC car mm-hmm. and your car just goes, mm, uh, you know, I hate that. But there's another 8% still out there, right? <laughs> yeah. And some of that is uranium 235, oh. but it's, it's, usually wrapped up in U-238. It's not, you know, it's not like you just find little veins of U-235 out there. So uh, John R. Dunning observed that uranium-235 appeared to be a lot more promising, but only if you could separate it from U-238. So now they're they're thinking, well, if there's some way for us to separate these isotopes from 235 from 238 and concentrate enough 235 in one spot we might be able to create a a nuclear reaction, chain reaction that is sustainable until a a significant amount of that fuel is converted into energy, Mm -hmm. Uh, in which case you would have either a big boom or a sustained power source. So we're going for the big boom. Yes. So without uh, enriching U-235, it's pretty much impossible to experiment further. They didn't have a way of doing this. Like they, they, they figure, well, 235, according to the math, is better. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. I don't know how to get the 235 out from the 238 yet. 
Right. In, in a feasible way at all. Right. In a way that would come across, come, come up with more than just microscopic amounts of right. U-235. And we're talking about the need for kilograms of the stuff. So mm. it's a problem. It was also in 1940 that the Advisory Committee on Uranium recommended that the government fund research into isotope separation mm-hmm. and nuclear chain reactions, uh, which the committee did. Uh, so separating 238 from 235 was hard. They're chemically identical, so you can't use chemistry to do it. Right. Because they're going to react exactly the same way. Uh, their atomic masses differ by less than 1%. So... Finding a way of separating them by mass is also a little tricky, but one of the more promising methods was the electromagnetic method. Now, this meant that you would create a magnetic field generated by a mass spectrometer to separate particles. And essentially, you create a magnetic field and you had the particles come into contact with that magnetic field. Mm. The magnetic field would deflect particles. Particles that had greater mass would be deflected a shorter distance. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah, because it can't push those as far, Uh right? So you could do this and deflect those particles, but it wasn't exactly fast. In 1940, they estimated that to create a gram of U-235 using a mass spectrometer in this way, Mm -hmm. uh, if you took U-238 and U-235 together and tried to just get one gram of U-235, it would take you approximately... 27,000 years. Not... Not like... Not the ideal time frame. Not if you wanted to respond to escalating aggression in Europe. Right, (laughs) right. Not not so much. 27,000 years, probably some multiple conflicts would have happened and resolved during that time. I mean, I think Hitler, who was admittedly an ambitious dude, was only planning on the Reich itself to be like a thousand years, right? Yeah, so it would have been a pretty... It would have been a pretty uh, long, long uh, bet on Boy, that. Boy, we would have been embarrassingly late to the party. Yes. So, but luckily, there were other ones too that they were looking into. One of them was a uh, gaseous diffusion, which I have mm-hmm. suffered from myself in occasion. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to say. No, thank you. Uh, gaseous diffusion was that's where you would use a a um, porous barrier, and you would use gas that has U two thirty eight and U two thirty five atoms in it. To pass through this porous barrier. Mm-hmm. Now, the U-235, being of less mass, would pass more readily through the barrier. So you would do this once, and then the mixture you would have would have a higher concentration of U-235 than it, the previous one did, because fewer of the U-238 would have gone through. Mm-hmm. But then you have to repeat the process. And you repeat the process over and over and over again. It's kind of like passing a solution through a filter and each pass the filter catches more and more of the stuff you don't want and allows the stuff you do want to go through but it's not foolproof that's why you have to keep on doing you it have to repeat the process mm-hmm. so again not terribly efficient uh, john dunning focused on that particular method then you also had uh, the possibility of using centrifuges and a centrifuge, you know, it essentially it spins around and around and around and uses mm-hmm. centrifugal force or centripetal force, if you prefer, but centrifugal force to to separate out materials. The heavier materials sink to one end. The lighter materials are pushed to the top. So in this case, the U-235 would be kind of at the top and center mm-hmm. of the centrifuge and the U-238 would be would it sink down lower and you would skim it off the top. Uh, centrifuges, however, at the time, not terribly reliable. Right. Yep. Uh, that was headed off by a guy named Jesse W. Beams at the University of Virginia. We're going to get into the politics. And there's a guy 
I have a feeling that he's come up in stuff they don't want you to know maybe once or twice. <laughs> have you guys ever talked about Vannevar Bush? We have talked about Vannevar Bush. Uh, he is a uh, he was uh, an American engineer and inventor. He headed the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and uh, Development. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and he was one of the early. uh now, well, okay, he was the go-to guy for military R&D at the time in yeah. the U.S. He was also kind of like the liaison between the politicians and the scientists. That's a great way to put it because he had uh, the analytical scientific mind. He had the, the chops uh, that would be required for yeah. a scientist, again, like a rock star, to respect you. Yeah, he's incredibly ambitious as yeah. well as effective at maneuvering through different power structures. Like, right. This guy was like a – he could get stuff done. And no offense to the various stereotypes of scientists, but uh, he probably was better at playing the game of diplomacy. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because yeah, he was he knew he understood how that particular science worked. <laughs> there we so go. Uh, yeah. he was uh, the president of the Carnegie Foundation and mm-hmm. then was appointed the head of the National Defense Research Committee, uh, which was a voice within the executive branch of government. And under that, the Uranium Committee was reorganized. So the Uranium Committee gets a, kind of a, a new ver- a new a gritty reboot. Yeah, kind of mission statement. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and, and it also meant that it was no longer organized under the military department. So yes, it, it that's didn't very have important. to. Yeah, it meant they could get their funding outside of the military. So instead of the army or the navy deciding, all right, we are going to allocate this much of our budget toward uranium research, it was a, an, an independent organization underneath this new committee. Um, so Bush allocated funds to continuing research in nuclear power and weapons. Mm-hmm. But he made some decisions that ended up um, really shaping the direction that the Manhattan Project would move in. The first decision he made was that no one on the committee would be allowed to be foreign born. No foreign born scientist would be allowed on the committee. That meant Einstein was not part of this. Yeah, that meant Fermi was not part. Of yeah. It. He also barred the publication of scientific findings on uranium research for an indeterminate amount of time because mm-hmm. again like uh, like the the Leo's previous <laughs> concerns he didn't want this any other discoveries to make their way across into enemy hands right right so now we're getting up to 1941 world war 2 is in full swing in in europe uh glenn t seaborg another important person identifies element 94 a transuranium or man-made element that was produced from radioactive decay of an isotope of neptunium. Neptunium is also a transuranium element. Right. That's 93. So 94, he gets to name it, they call it plutonium. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And he discovers that one of the features of plutonium is that it's 1.7 times more likely to undergo fission as uranium-235. It loves fission. Yeah. 235 loves fission more than 238. Plutonium loves fission more than uranium-235. So the experiments took place at Ernest Lawrence's radiation laboratory at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So Lawrence, again, very important here. Uh, Lawrence personally felt that the uranium committee was a little slow, that it was not responding fast enough. It wasn't funding the research. Uh, And so he met with Vannevar Bush. Mm -hmm. And then Bush saw Lawrence as being really 
uh, persuasive and and influential. So he makes Lawrence an advisor to Briggs. You know, Briggs was the head of that uranium yeah. committee. And so once that happens, suddenly the coffers open up a little bit more and more research gets funded. Uh, Vannevar Bush also created a committee to report on the uranium program in the U.S. And he put Arthur Compton, who was a physicist who specialized in radiation studies, in charge of it. So Compton makes a report in May 1941 and confirmed that either U-235 or plutonium were the most likely candidates for some sort of atomic weapon. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and on June 28th, 1941, the United States establishes the Office of Scientific Research and Development. This is the one you referred to as Bush being of the head of it. This right. is when it was officially made a thing. This is when it was officially, yeah. yeah. We, we had talked, I think, it's stuff that I want you to know about, about that time. Uh, just a few days before, this is actually the 28th, uh, was a few days after the 22nd when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Yes. So, yeah. Various things are hitting various fans. Right, right. The big one being that there is a lot of incentive yeah. to push this research through. Uh, meanwhile, James B. Conant, who was president of Harvard, became the new head of the National Defense Research mm-hmm. Committee, mm-hmm. Uh, which was now an advisory board that would offer guidance on research and development funding. And guys, we know how, not to interject too much, but guys, we know how confusing it can be to hear yeah. these very long, dry names of committees but part of this, uh, part of all this restructuring that you hear about and all these names uh, comes because they were desperately trying to find the best way to approach this problem mm-hmm. uh, simply because uh, can you imagine? Of course, there were uh, of course, there were agents from what would become the allies in in. Germany at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. However, the the level of access they had was no guarantee. Right. The only way to be there was the only way to know that you would not be the victim of a nuclear bomb or an atomic weapon was to uh, be first past the post. So uh, this stuff is I mean, Jonathan, there were probably some egos involved. Oh, no, there are tons of egos. Involved. <laughs> but I think I think the. I think the main thing to remember is that although we hear all these dry names, what they're really doing is desperately, and I do use that word correctly, desperately trying to find the way to get massive amounts of funding because they already know it's going to be an expensive search. Well, that and and at at this stage in 1941, we're still talking theory. Yeah. We're still we're still saying that they're saying. If such a thing is possible, U-235 and plutonium are our best bets. That's a great point. We can't guarantee it's possible. Yeah, they're still saying if. Yeah. And that's the thing is that you've got – that's why you have all this research and development going in. And they're going through multiple lines of inquiry, Mm -hmm. right? Because they don't want to say, well, let's just look at one and hope that that is going to work out. There's No, let's look at all of them and find out which ones are the most promising and concentrate on those. Yes. Good point. uh, So Conant is – head of this board that's going to look at these different um, proposals right. and decide which ones are the ones most that most warrant additional funding. So if you are the head of a research department at, say, Columbia University, you're more likely to receive funding than if you're some Yahoo in your backyard saying, if I smack these two rocks together, sparks fly. Right. So yeah. that's the important part. This is all about like the goal here is pushing forward this research. So under this new organization, 
the Uranium Committee becomes the Office of Scientific Research and Development Section on Uranium. And that's a really long name. Yeah. And they recognized it. So they codenamed it S1. So <laughs> S1 becomes this specific committee that's looking at uranium research. Can it be used as a way of making a weapon? July 1941, a group in Britain's National Defense Research Committee, which was codenamed MAUD, M-A-U-D, mm-hmm. uh, they, they, their whole purpose was again to look and see if a nuclear weapon could be practical. They submitted a report that based upon their calculations, you could use 10 kilograms of U-235 to create an enormously destructive bomb. And that could be dropped by existing aircraft of the time. And it would probably be two years out in development. Like within two years of concentrated development, such a bomb could be built. So by 1943, mm-hmm. Britain shares this report with America and uh, because Britain recognizes that America has an enormous resource in scientific expertise. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the, that report specifically recommended using gaseous diffusion to separate U-235 from U-238 and outright dismisses the idea of using plutonium. So the Brits say you should use 235, you should use gaseous diffusion to get your 235 from 238, and forget about plutonium. It's a dead end. That was their recommendation. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, you got Fermi, who becomes the head of theoretical studies at the Uranium Committee. And keep in mind, Fermi is the plutonium guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, when you say there were probably egos involved, yes, there were. <laughs> and And there were people who were absolutely convinced that their approach was the one that was going to be the the most economical, the most efficient, the most mm-hmm. scientifically sound. So in these arguments, do you think there were a lot of uh, those, you fools, yes. moments? <laughs> yes, you fuse. <laughs> yeah, it would all be uh, uh, in, in dramatic, like 1930s style mm-hmm. uh, dialects. Well, not 1941 in October, Bush meets with Roosevelt to discuss the state of research uh, he receives instruction from Roosevelt to continue research and development, but it was expressly told, don't build a bomb until I tell you to. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which was fine because they were at least a few years away from being able to build one in the first place, even under ideal situation. Uh, November 6, 1941, Arthur Compton reports that based on his calculations, a critical mass of U-235 U-2 between 2 and 100 kilograms would produce a powerful fission bomb uh, and could be created with an investment of around $50 million to $100 million in isotope separation technologies, which turned out to be incredible. Crazy optimistic. Yeah, they were lowballing. Yeah. So uh, obviously the Brits come up with 10 kilograms and Arthur Compton says, that's probably going to be somewhere between two and a hundred. <laughs> it's a slightly larger range. Uh, December 7th, 1941, very important day in World War II. That was the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. It's when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. That brings the United States into World War II and sets this all on an even faster track than it was before. Right. So January 19th, 1942, Roosevelt gives Vannevar Bush the go-ahead to pursue the development of an atomic bomb. So we've gone from keep on researching this to see if it's possible to build one of these, keeping in mind that we're still working in the realm of theory. Yeah, and the, but the funding floodgates were open. Yep. They said uh, no more um, figuring out 
how to do it now that just becomes a step in my mandate to you. Yeah. To give me a working atomic bomb. And they form what is called the Top Policy Committee, uh, which it was led by Vannevar Bush. Uh, they also had uh, Vice President Henry A. Wallace. Uh, James Conant was part of it. Henry L. Stimson, who was the Secretary of War, was part of it. And General George C. Marshall, who was Chief of Staff of the Army, was part of it. And the top policy group decided to pursue five strategies Four different isotope isolation methods and the use of plutonium as the five different methods of potentially creating an atomic bomb. Uh, The reason they decided to look at five again was because none of the five had so far emerged as the clear superior method. Right. Yeah. So because they didn't know, they said, well, we would rather go ahead and have all these different groups, all of which have brilliant engineers and physicists attached to them to independently work on this stuff, they're motivated by, one, many of them come from Europe and they see what's going on in World Mm -hmm. War II. Mm -hmm. Two, many of them have egos and they want to prove (laughs) that their method is the right one. And three, they're they're genuinely interested in the science. Mm -hmm. So March of 1942, uh, Lawrence, the the fellow who ran the cyclotron in Berkeley, uh, pursues the electromagnetic isotope separation method using a cyclotron as a mass spectrometer. And he's so successful that Vannevar Bush sends another message to Roosevelt saying, hey, if this pans out, we might be able to have an atomic bomb as early as 1944. Mm -hmm. That would turn out to be optimistic as well. (laughs) Uh, In April 1942, Arthur Compton who was guiding research into plutonium. So we got Lawrence with electromagnetic isotope isolation. Mm -hmm. Now we've got Compton, who's looking into plutonium. He's funding the work of J. Robert Oppenheimer at Berkeley. Who may be familiar to some of you, especially if you've ever checked out uh, any of our other shows. (laughs) Yeah, Oppenheimer comes up a lot. I mean, every single person that I'm mentioning here could warrant an entire episode. That's true. And Stuff You Missed in History Class, I'm sure, has covered many of them in the past. They have covered a few, yeah. So uh, Oppenheimer and Fermi also gets funding from Arthur Compton. He yeah. says, all right, Fermi's got a, a pile, a nuclear pile that he's working with at Columbia University. Uh, also funds Eugene Wigner's theoretical work at Princeton. Now, over at the University of Chicago, Compton secured some space to create his own uranium and graphite nuclear pile. By securing some space, I mean he converted a racquetball court underneath the grandstand at Stag Field at the University of Chicago mm-hmm. into a nuclear pile. This, by the way, would scare the heck out of everybody later on because he didn't bother to tell anyone that that's what he was doing. Well, 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 let us remember this was a top secret project. And also if we're talking, I don't know why my voice went out to <laughs> And also if we're, if we're talking about, uh, public safety, uh, then, you know, the, the dangerous rationalization people can always make is what is the safety of the people above in a grandstand? Or even the University of Chicago compared to the safety of the world. Well, listen here, Bullen. What I'm telling you is that he was a maverick. A rebel, I tell you. No. Uh, he, uh, well, in, t- in his defense, yeah. this approach that he was using, which was very similar to Fermi's approach, mm. was low energy. It was not something that was uh, perceived to have risk of it becoming a runaway reaction. Right. It was yeah. it was more, again, to study the actual physics involved to better understand it. And posed very little threat to the people of Chicago 
using the design that he used. Yeah. He, he wasn't using a, he was using a design that didn't require a cooling system or a shield because he wasn't, it wasn't this super high energy type of, of mm-hmm. uh, reactions that he was, he was looking into. May 1942, Compton, Arthur Compton asks J. Robert Oppenheimer to take over research into fast neutron interactions to determine the necessary conditions for a critical mass to explode. So Oppenheimer takes on that work. Vannevar Bush asks James Conant, the guy from Harvard, for recommendations on how to proceed. And the S-1 Leadership Committee decides that instead of focusing on one area of research, all of them still have to be funded and accelerated. They still weren't certain which of these were going to end up being successful. It's still too early. So they say, well, we can't we can't pull the trigger on one of these yet. We still have to keep on going. And in June 1942, the Army's involvement in the project uh, really picks up. You have a guy named Colonel James C. Marshall come into the picture. So James C. Marshall... He's in charge of uh, the Army Corps of Engineers' involvement in mm-hmm. this project. And the Army Corps of Engineers, their main job was to secure sites that they, they could then use to build facilities on to test out the theory that was being generated in these various camps. Right, yeah. So in your normal operations, if there's not a war going on, what you would typically do is you have – the the research and development work that is starting to be promising, you would build a pilot plant mm-hmm. that would test these things out. And it would be designed in such a way that you could make rapid changes to the plant's design in order to best fit whatever the process. Wh- whatever the specs were. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So you might say, oh, it turns out that this design we came up with isn't the best one. We should change it to this. A pilot plant is the kind where you would be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Then once you figured out what was the best approach, you could build a full production facility. Right. Yeah. And at, at this time, uh, I believe the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was based in New York. Yeah. The headquarters, it was supposed to be a temporary headquarters, <laughs> was on Broadway. In Manhattan. Because you want to keep it low-key. Yeah. So they called it the Ma- Manhattan Engineering District, mm-hmm. uh, or sometimes just the Manhattan District and sometimes just Manhattan. And that, in fact, is where the Manhattan Project gets its name. It gets its name from James C. Marshall's headquarters in Manhattan. And he was really – he was on the phone – Calling up potential land, you know, landowners who could potentially sell him the land necessary for him to build these facilities. And the crazy thing here is the Army Corps of Engineers and, and these scientists are essentially skipping the pilot stage. They're going straight from, well, we're pretty sure this is the way it's going to work to let's build a facility to do it. Mm-hmm. And by skipping the pilot stage, it causes huge headaches down the line. But, yeah. but at the same time, they said, well, we don't have the luxury of time to go the scientifically responsible route. So we have to do it this way. So uh, we get the Manhattan Project. Technically, uh, the project has a different name. Mm-hmm. The the official code name for the project, because it's super secret, y'all, is the development of substitute metals or sometimes the development of substitute materials, depending upon which mm-hmm. citation you're reading, or DSM. That's the official code name. But everyone calls it the Manhattan Project. Uh, so we are now at the point where the Manhattan Project comes into being. James C. Marshall being in charge of it, kind of being an administrator to make sure that the scientists are getting the resources they need. And this leads us to the conclusion of this episode so that in our next episode, we can focus specifically on what happens with the Manhattan Project. You're going to have 
a whole list of new names. <laughs> this is really just to prepare you in case you ever decide to read the Game of Thrones series. Mm-hmm. So that way you know how to handle all these different characters because it's kind of similar in that respect. Um, so, Ben, we're going to be talking about like super top secret stuff in the next episode. Keeping in mind, the Manhattan Project was a secret from almost everybody from 1942 when it came into existence yep. to mid-1945 after the bomb is dropped on uh, Hiroshima. Yeah. So this is the when it comes to stuff they don't want you to know, this is it. This oh, is yeah, like, yeah. You, you, you talk about massive government conspiracy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get much bigger than this. We're talking 130,000 people or thereabouts employed in some way or another, most of whom had no idea what they were contributing to. Right. Yeah. This is uh, this is bigger than Area 51. Yeah. You know, this is something that we talked about in our previous Area 51 podcast. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Uh, so uh, let's see. I guess this will be a little bit of a cliffhanger for the listeners. Yeah. So you guys will have out. to tune in next week. Same bad time. Same bad channel. Uh, ben, if they want to find you, where can they look? Where does your stuff live? Oh, yeah. You can uh, you can find us on YouTube, your podcast streaming place of choice. Uh, my co-host producer, Matt and uh uh, Noel and I do uh, do the show stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, we're we're all over the place. We have a website, but it's really long. Stuff they don't <laughs> want you to know. dot com. We didn't choose the name. Yeah, but uh, check us out. You can also find Jonathan and I on uh, Brain Stuff. You can find us on What the Stuff. You can find us cameoing in various different things. So. And usually, we're in the background of someone else's, someone who's who's better at us than what we do. What are you talking about? <laughs> I Look, know. after this talk about egos, technically you know, we are the best in, in this in this entire office. Look. I mean, I don't like to brag, but Ben and I are clearly the most camera ready of everyone here. So, mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, for me, it's just letting go and not not being uh, not not being good stuff. I like to rub a little garbage on myself yeah just beforehand just so, to kind of bring you down a little bit yeah i need yeah. to be taken down a few it's, it's nice to at least fake humility humility once it's in a while true. all right so guys you can check out his stuff stuff they don't want you to know remember if you want to send me a message you have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest or someone you want me to interview anything like that send it to tech stuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is TechStuffHSW. And we will conclude this discussion on the Manhattan Project really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 